it means that my job at the APTA is that if the profession is doing good things or there's good things on the horizon, my job is to help find those things and get them into clinical practice. Okay. And if we are doing stupid things, terrible things, my job is to try and keep us from doing those things and get them out of clinical practice. So I think that's kind of the best way to approach my role is just kind of from that high level of that's really kind of what I'm looking at. That is a very cool job. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Drew Contreras, the Vice President of Clinician Integration and Innovation for the American Physical Therapy Association. You won't want to miss this conversation on top of scope practice, barriers to practice, and future directions for the profession of physical therapy. This definitely impacts you. Listen in. Thanks for listening. Hi, welcome back to In the ED Now. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, and with me today is Dr. Drew Contreras. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so happy you're here. Can you tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm a PT by trade. Currently, um, kind of sitting in two places. Uh, my first is I'm a senior leader at the American Physical Therapy Association. I'm the vice president of clinical integration and innovation. And when people ask me, what does that mean? Yes. Uh, I usually tell them like, it means this. It means that my job at the APTA is that if the profession is doing good things or there's good things on the horizon, my job is to help find those things and get them into clinical practice. Okay. And if we are doing stupid things, terrible things, my job is to try and keep us from doing those things and get them out of clinical practice. So I think that's kind of the best way to approach my role is just kind of from that high level of that's really kind of what I'm looking at. That is a very cool job. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's good because it gives you the opportunity to kind of look forward at the profession. What are the things that are on the horizon? What are the things that are going to impact us uh, at scale as a profession? Yeah. Uh, but also, you know, look at it as uh, also forward looking at if there's things that we're doing that are clearly not going to serve us well in the future, then we have to figure out, well, what do we replace those with? Or when do those things need to go? When do we need to let go of those things? Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's a little challenging to have those conversations with people, uh, but sometimes it's it's necessary. And what's the other way that you're involved in the profession? So I'm also uh, I'm also a clinician, right? So I, uh, I take care of some, some folks uh, in the DC area who have significant scheduling and security concerns. Uh, that's mostly a holdover from my days as being a military physical therapist. So I always like to tell people that I do actually see patients. I am actually a clinician as well. I don't just, you know, wear a suit on occasion. So I like to, you know, at least hold on to being a clinician as long as I can. I love that. Okay. So we've got, you're kind of looking forward on behalf of all of us and then looking forward on behalf of some patients as well. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. I love that. So, you know, me, you know, that like one of the things that I talk about all the time is like practicing at the top of your scope. And that I think that's the way that our profession is going to survive. What do you think about that concept? And what do you think about that thought process? So, right. As a former military physical therapist, right. I enjoyed the ability to practice above and beyond kind of what a civilian license affords you. Right. So yes. I could 
order whatever imaging studies I need, whether they were MRIs or bone scans or whatever, right? I'm consulting directly with surgeons or neurosurgery or whatever other subspecialty you need to, right? And in all cases, right, anything that was musculoskeletal that wasn't an immediate surgical concern was coming through physical therapy, right? And so, you know, the, the, the good thing about that is you get a lot of repetition, you get a lot of, lot of reps at seeing things, um, and you get very adapt at it. And as far as, you know, kind of managing, doing kind of that um, immediate evaluation and then determination of what's something that you can manage with conservative care versus what's something that needs to go on in surgical care, right? So the thing I really learned um, after doing that for more than 20 years is that it's a skill set that really any anybody with a with a PT license has the capacity to do it. It's certainly right. There's certainly some things that you should brush up on or some things that you should familiarize yourself with. You shouldn't just jump right into it, but it's nothing that's beyond the scope of a licensed PT. Um, and I think if we're being honest with each other, that this is really where the future of being a, a, a PT kind of resides as far as in that outpatient musculoskeletal role is kind of sitting in that upper level management of patients and conditions. Uh, that's kind of the best role for us. And when you say management, what do you mean by that? So I think that, right, the PT has to look at a couple of things. I think you have to look at um, what after your evaluation, right, if there are things that need to be done, you need to facilitate that, right? So in states where you have imaging is something you can do, right? You need to facilitate that. But there's a, there's another side to that, right? It's not just ordering the imaging study, right? It's following up with the results. And mm -hmm. sometimes results of imaging studies are not great, right? Correct. And, that's, and, and sometimes, right, you as a PT are now having a significant conversation about a patient with an incidental finding uh, on an image that now means you need to consult oncology, right? Or you need to consult neurosurgery like immediately. And like, you now own that patient, right? And so somebody stepping into that primary care kind of, you know, management, like you need to be aware of that and own it as, as a clinician, right? And if we're truly a doctoring profession, that should, that should just be accepted as part of that management piece. Yeah. Cause I think, and I talk about all that all the time. Are we consultants? Are we technicians or are we doctors? who manage their patient's care. And so for me, it really is about patient management, no matter what role you're in. And I'm sure there are PTs listening that are like, I don't do musculoskeletal care, this doesn't apply to me. But I would argue that, that's, that this top of scope practice and this patient management encounters you and your patient caseload, no matter what setting you're practicing in. Right, I completely agree, right? So let's just say, let's say you're a school-based PEDS PT, right? Like yeah. I don't do musculoskeletal, I do, I do school-based PEDS. Like, you really think that there's somebody better suited to manage the needs of that child than you? Like, you really think that like the primary care doc who doesn't even understand whatever the pathology of that child is, like that's who should be managing them or somebody who's intimately familiar with them, who knows the family, who knows the patient, that's who should be managing that kid, right? Or let's say you work with amputees, right? Like, you really think there's somebody else better to advocate for somebody who needs a new prosthesis or for somebody who, you know, is missing um, services in, in the totality of their of their case management. Like the one thing you can never deny as PTs is that, you know, we get the, the luxury of spending a lot of time with people, right? Your patients, you spend time with them. And, 
you know, some of us consider that a burden. I understand. It's not always easy, but that's part of the profession you've chosen. Um, and along with that, you know, that time comes the, like you said, the, that relationship and the, and the management, um, you're perfectly suited for it. It's just you have to accept, though, you're a doctoring profession, and that's part of it. Yeah, and I think, too, it's that relationship that we build with patients. Like, I see my primary care physician probably once a year for my physical. And if something comes up in between then, I see the PA or the nurse practitioner, whoever's available, because trying to get to see my primary care doctor is impossible. So we catch up once a year, and she says, oh, yeah, you don't really need me. You're, you're fine. Is that true though? You know, like, how's my function? Like, what's the, my mental health look like? What's my day to day like? Like, how do we know that I'm living those healthy habits that I should be? Are you managing my health or are you just coordinating my illness? And I think physical therapists, I had this conversation with a student um, just the other day, physical therapists are really well positioned. So when I ask people, do you want somebody to manage your health or do you want somebody to manage you when you're sick. And I think those are two different things because I don't think primary care physicians have the luxury of participating in one of those two scenarios. No, you're right. And and I think right that also kind of goes to this concept of are we a profession that only looks at somebody, right, with a um, we only provide interventions, right, when there is a, a disease process that we feel like we have to fix, right? Or address. There's a, there's an incident, right? As opposed to, you know, like you said, healthy lifestyle behaviors, talking to people about, you know, um, just function, right? Functioning as we age, being active, being, you know, just part of uh, interacting, whether that's with your, your family and your kids, right? Or in your community and doing things and being able to be a part of that. Is that what we do? Medicine, a lot of times, right, is built on that disease model, right? And the question is, is that, is that best suited for us in the future? And, and I would challenge that it's probably not. I think it's not. And I think, um, I mean, another one of my soapboxes is that we provide payer-centered care and not patient-centered care, and that we live in a very reactive healthcare model. Um, and I think the space for the future, right, is in that proactive space, that healthy space, that prevention of injury, that prevention of illness. And who better to do that than a physical therapist? I think that if you really were trying to ask, right, like who yeah. who else is suited for this? And if able. Yeah, it, right. And actually has the skill set to do it. There's not a lot of healthcare providers that do it or would be interested in doing it. Yeah. And I think obviously a team-based approach is the most effective model. I'm not saying that we should be out there like doing this independently completely. Obviously, if you come in with strep throat, like I I can't fix that. That's not a thing I can help with. I can help guide you to the right place. I can help manage that. Um, But I think that we need to start looking at some of those models. And, and, and I know the next question that we're going to get, because especially since you work for the APTA, is, well, we don't get paid to do that. What about reimbursement? How are we supposed to do that? I'm only allowed to t- treat the shoulder. I can't treat the whole person. I can't manage their care. How am I supposed to do that? It's not possible. First, the question is, what is your intent? Right? Mm-hmm. That's where I would start. What are you trying to do? right? And if everything you do is strictly for eight-minute billable increments, right? Like my, my answer would be you're kind of failing yourself as a professional, right? Like you're failing mm-hmm. yourself as a doctoring profession, right? Mm-hmm. Like you would become a technician if that's what you do. If that's your approach and that's all you're there to do, then then and look, 
I'm not saying that that people can't do that and that people aren't adhering to the letter of the law if that's the way they practice, right? But right. I would just ask yourself, is that what is that what you spent three years to do? Is that what you spent your is that what you spent all that time and energy so that you could just do that? Like, yes, being reimbursed for your work is is essential, right? It's it's right, right? like it's you can't do it if there's no reimbursement at all, right? But if you're saying that all you can do with somebody is only look at that one small thing, you can't have another conversation about, you know, tangential impairments or things that are connected to the system that are also affecting it or habits in their life that may have caused them to be in this place to start with. Right. Like it's just not it's not true. Right. So we just have to be honest about it and and, and respect that um, and just say, like, is that. Is that really what you signed up for? Is that really what you're here to do? And I feel like as a patient, if I like, I, I just had foot surgery and I said to the orthopedic PA the other day, I said, I think I need to go to physical therapy. And she said, well, you can't do that. I mean, you're not even close to weight bearing. I said, my hips feel like awful from the way that I've been moving, the positions that I've been in, I've been managing it as best I can on my own, but there are some things that I cannot do myself. And I just thought if I went to a PT with a script from for this like foot surgery and I said, I really need help with my hips. How many PTs are going to be like, well, I can't, I can't do that for you. Like that's not what's, that's not what's on the script. Right. And this is the conversation we need to have and challenge each other of like, what is that all you're there to do? It's just that one that that's your plan. That's your plan for success. Right. Like is. Yeah. Right, that it, it's just not right, and and maybe right, maybe it's the you need to have the larger conversation with the patient. You need to have a larger conversation with the referring provider, right? But rarely, right? Anybody who's been doing this for more than a second, you know, like rarely is the point of problem, right? The only thing that caused that problem to fail, right? Right. Like usually, right. There's something else involved in the chain or some other aspect of that human being's life that has contributed to get them in front of you as a patient. And if you fail to address that, you're really not addressing the problem. You're not. And that's where I think we have run into that question of value. So if I go to a PT and they're like, we can't see you until you're weight bearing. And I'm like, but I can't, I haven't slept in two weeks because of this other issue related to this. It's still a post-surgical issue. What value are you providing me? Like I'm willing to pay for that service because I need the value from that. So I think also until we present ourselves to patients as a real value add, as opposed to like, oh, you only get six visits, so we're only going to do the six visits. I think there's a failure in logic there. Like if there's truly value, people will pay for that. I went and paid and got a $200 massage last week because that's what I felt like I needed. And I couldn't get in to see a physical therapist. And and that was the value that I was willing to give for that particular service. I think patients are willing and ready to do that. Oh, there's no doubt, right? And then, here, like the the question I always have, right? Like when people are like, "Well, you know, um, I, I don't know if people will pay out of pocket for physical therapy." So, Ask, okay, right? Right? What? Well, and then I say to them, "Do you know somebody? You know, a, a woman like you with a significant amount of hair on your head? I imagine when you go to get that done, it costs oh, yeah. more than a dollar, right? It oh costs, yeah, right. But but in your what you pay for the services you provide, you find value in the person who does that. And I, so whenever I ask this question, like, what do you pay to get your hair done? Or what does your wife pay or your husband pay to get their hair done, right? Like, 
okay, my name starts with doctor, right? So let's start there, right? I'm doing yeah. something more than that, right? But what what is that value to you, right? Like, I so I just had a plumber come to my house, right? And I was like, hey, man, I need you to fix this sink. It's leaking. He's like, great. My billable rate is 400 an hour, right? That's a plumber, right? And, and you're what, like, you can choose yes or you can choose right. no. He's like, I don't care if I don't care if your sink leaks all day long. Like, yeah. I'll either fix it for you or I'll leave, right? And the value was, I need a sink. I need you to fix this. It is worth this to me, right? And, and to yeah, prevent further damage to your house. Correct, right? So, so when people think that our services are only valuable in the CMS slideshow scale of reimbursement for eight-minute CPT codes, right? That's a that's a failure on your part to understand the value of what you do as a clinician and what you provide, and to not then extract that and present that to patients of like, this is what I can do for you, right? This is this is how we can help, right? Like or is said, that the level of value that some PTs are providing? There you and go. And so people are not going to pay out of pocket for that, right? So, I mean, but again, right, like it's, it's all part of the big conversation, right? But if we fail to acknowledge that it's part of the conversation, then there, there's no future in this for anybody. Yeah. And I think the APTA report about cost savings related to several different diagnoses does a really nice job of highlighting cost savings. And when we talk about upstream care, providing care that helps prevent downstream costs, that helps prevent downstream injury, it prevents downstream health conditions. The thing that is really hard to show people is you can't prove that something didn't happen because of what right. you did. Right. And so I feel like this report actually did that. So can you speak a little bit about that report, how how PTs can use it, how they can share it, how they can lobby with that? Sure. Right. So the the, the full report's available at valueofpt.com. And really the best way to think about it is this. <clears throat> there's a couple of, there's 10 conditions that are outlined in there. Everything from like carpal tunnel, back pain, you know, just some kind of common stuff. And what it does, it really outlines for people, what are the tangible cost savings of seeing a physical therapist with this condition, right? And, and it really just puts it in very plain English. Now, people say, well, clinicians say to me, well, I read the report and it was, you know, it was kind of rudimentary. It wasn't like, that's because it's not for you, right? Yeah. This report is not for clinicians. This report is for payers. This report is for elected officials. This report is for people who are making decisions about healthcare, benefit managers. It is not for clinicians. There are some great short one minute, two minute videos, right? That are super easy to look at, right? That you can share with people that just explains this, right? It's not a clinical tool. This is not a peer reviewed journal article, right? Which is what we've historically tried to do is show up with Look at this 32 page, you know, two way ANOVA, blah, blah, about the, the like, nobody cares. Nobody and the cares patient's like, my back hurts. Right. Right. As opposed to, here's a one minute video that shows why seeing me is good and saves money. There you go. Yeah. And when you, when you talk about benefit managers, I think about that and I think like, about the example of say like you're you're the city benefits manager for the city of Denver right. and you are like looking at 
do I want to spend more money on physical therapy or do I want them to have higher benefits in these areas? And all my patients that have gotten like back pain that have gone through the medical system, that's costing so much money. The ones that went to PT, that costs so much less. Like to me, that's a no brainer. And to be able to codify it, explain it, show it right to those benefit managers of like, you know, this is actually going to get you some, some savings and it's going to help your, your people out. Right. Because it, it, like, look, that's the two things they care about. Right. Certainly. Right. They're all looking to manage healthcare costs. Right. That's a significant yep. part of their job. But they also want they want the employees to be happy. Right. they want to give the employees what they need. There's no I, I, I you know, in my in my job, I've had the opportunity to talk to, mm-hmm. to some benefit managers and try to understand things from their standpoint. And like none of them are out to, like, make people's lives miserable. Yeah. Right? Like, they don't want to hear people complaining about things either. Right. But, you know, they have they have a threshold that they have to manage just like like anybody. And if they can if you can help them meet that threshold and give value to to their to their employees, then then they're thrilled. They're they're happy yeah. to do it. You just have to show them how. And this helps with that. Yeah, that's exactly what it's for. Right. And it's not something that we've done historically. Right. We've historically taken the, you know, the scientific approach to it. Um you know, but APTA talked to some other people. They're like, look, that 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 approach doesn't it doesn't work, right? It doesn't it doesn't yeah. it doesn't it doesn't get you the results you want because you've been doing it for thirty years and you've gotten nothing out of it. So why don't you try doing it this way? Right? Yeah, I think especially in like this like COVID related society that we're in now too. Like, obviously, evidence based information is not really accessible to the general public disinformation is free and widely available, whereas like evidence-based peer-reviewed information is difficult to read, it's difficult to interpret, and it's behind a paywall. So I think we do ourselves a disservice by only sharing information in that way as well. Right, right. And that that's exactly, you're so, you're so right on this, right? But, but again, even if it was free, it doesn't make any sense to anybody. Right. Doesn't mean anything, right? So you know, we could we could share it, we could throw it out there, and and just it won't it won't mean anything. So, right, if we're actually going to make a difference, if we're actually going to engage, you have to engage the right level of audience with the tools that kind of say the right message. I think that makes absolutely a ton of sense. So, just switching gears a little bit, when I say to you, "Hey, I practice in the emergency department." and you're the director of innovation, what do you think of that for our profession? Is that something we should invest more time in? Are there other places you feel like PTs have to be to help us move forward? I think that, um, number one, I think that you're a saint for practicing in that area, (laughs) right? Let's just call the emergency department what it is, right? It is the place that people go when they're at their worst moment in their life, right? So nobody's like, you know what would be awesome? I'm just going to go to the emergency department and hang out. Even the staff feel like that. Right. <laughs> so, so, right. So, so understand that like you're, you get humanity at its worst, right? And so it's that, best. I mean, and it's best. Correct. And it's best. So once you've kind of moved past that, right. The thing that I think, um, the thing that resonates with me is that PTs have a unique ability to kind of systematically problem solve things, right? It's kind of the way that we're we're kind of our thinking, our thought process, our evaluative process, right? Really um, works well in a situation like 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 an ED where people show up, 
there's limited resources, right? You don't have everything at your fingertips every moment of the day. Um, and you have to start going through a process of like, what decisions am I making? What things can I do? What things can I impact right now, right? What can I do to address this problem that's in front of me, right? And then what are the things that I need to do big picture, right? So yes. that so that this person isn't back here every day, right? Like how do we how do we address that? But we have to take care of the immediacy that's in front of us. Yeah. Right? And I think that, you know, PTs have that skill set. I think um, just by nature of the way that we critically think and we approach our evaluations and kind of our thought process. But the other thing you realize, right, that again, right, like maybe the maybe the stats have changed a bit, but like in my heyday in the military, right, we knew that over 70% of everything that showed up at the ED was musculoskeletal. Yep. So 70% of things walking through that door were bumps, bruises, sprains and strains and whatnot, right? Like, look, yes, if somebody's coming in, right, holding their, you know, carotid artery, I got nothing, right? I'm yeah. not the guy, right? That's not what I'm going to do. Oh, right? clear the path. Right, exactly, right? But like, that's not the majority of things showing up through through an ED. And so when you start there with like 70% of the people showing up need somebody to evaluate a non-surgical musculoskeletal problem or the problem that maybe it is surgical, right? But even if it is surgical, kid tore their ACL playing football, right? Kid shows up on an ambulance from the football field, right? Like they're not having surgery that moment, right? Yeah, like, the bone is sticking out, I'll defer. Correct, absolutely. But that's not the vast majority of things coming in there, right? Right. Right, so, so if we're being honest about like, well, who should staff? the vast majority of these things, right? Is it somebody who's at a whim, ready to, to take down, you know, a, 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 a sucking chest wound? Like, is that what we need? Like, do I need a an ER internist? Like, uh, not for most stuff, right? Like, yeah, for some stuff, but usually not, right? Like, usually, you know, like, it's, I don't know, I hurt my shoulder. Maybe it's in, maybe it's out. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, right? Like, <clears throat> you don't actually need an orthopedic surgeon, right? Because somebody has a little bit of shoulder instability. They're not going, you know, they're, they're not going to have an immediate, you know, shoulder repair, right? Like, yes. So. You need the right so the professional at the right time to make the right decisions as effectively as possible. And I think, too, we want that physician who is ready for that sucking chest wound to be available for that. Yes, right. And focus on that. Yeah, they don't need to be looking at somebody's twisted ankle. Right? And when people walk through the door to the ED, I used to like kind of wonder a little bit about how the triage process worked. And then the more I was there, I'm like, oh, no, that one's sick. That one is not sick. That one's really sick. Like, let's move out of the way. And, and when you said, um, you know, if people were just coming for emergencies, then we wouldn't really necessarily need to be there. But I would tell you, even during the height of the COVID surges, when people really weren't coming for those musculoskeletal issues and people were coming in hypoxic and struggling, there was still such a big role for us. And I think about physical therapists from the perspective of like innovation and filling needs during COVID that in the hospital, we were such an easy group of people to redeploy. And the reasons for that were, we can assess vitals. We understand trends. 
We know how to connect and communicate with patients. We know how to de-escalate things. We know how to focus on pacing. We know how to mobilize patients. We know every single unit of the hospital. We know where every supply room is. We know who to communicate with and how to communicate. And we can notice subtle changes in function that maybe other people didn't or wouldn't because they don't they don't look from that lens. So I had one night in particular where I was doing a night shift in the ED during a surge because that's what they needed. They needed help. And a lot of people didn't want to redeploy to the ED because yeah. it's scary. And the hallways were just lined with patients. And my job was just taking vitals. But real and and if an ambulance came, I would go and I would take the patient off the ambulance gurney and put them in a chair mm-hmm. or put them on the floor because we right. We didn't have anywhere else to put them. And I would like start at one end and take the vitals and go all the way around and come back up. And I would handle as many needs as I could. Um, But like, for me, it was like, okay, the last time I took your vitals, you were satting it at 90%. And now you're satting at 76%. I'm going to move you up in the line. Oh, yeah. Not okay. (laughs) Or you had normal posture the last time I was here. And now you're, you're splinting. Right. Right. You know, so I think it, we we really are well positioned to work in this area, to work in disasters, to work like you did in the military in so yeah. many ways, just based on our training. And I wish more people could recognize their capacity and capability to do that. Well, and the way that right, the way that that happens is, you know, we as a collective profession choose to engage in those opportunities outside of the regular clinical setting, right? Whether that's through medical mission work, whether that's through working in, you know, in EDs or volunteering in situations or, or uh, areas of, of, of lower density where, you know, it's more rural, they just don't have enough clinicians, right? And, and a PT shows up, it can actually do some stuff. That's when that will change, right? And, yeah. and that's, but that's, that's going to come from us. We, that is incumbent upon our profession to display and show what we have to offer. And I think people say that all the time. Nobody even knows what we do. But I would argue, do you know what you do? Do you know what you're capable of doing? And do you know really what you have to offer? And can you get yourself to that top of scope level practice? Yeah, right. And uh, right, kind of where we started this conversation, right? And and it's it's that it's there. It's available, right? We have to own the doctoring profession. We have to own that, like we have to be willing to work at that level, right? And accept the responsibility at that level. I can't think of a better parting thought. Do you have a better parting thought than that? Well, that was pretty good, right? I love I, it. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, thank you so much for being on the show. You've been in the ED now, and you're officially discharged. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.